and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit more about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about what the world calls soft skills. We are a combination of facilitators and coaches. We do one-on-one coaching and we do group experiences. And we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book. And I've been overwhelmed over the past year by the response the book has gotten so far. Additionally, I mentioned that we are a team of executive coaches and facilitators If you or your company is interested in learning more about coaching or facilitating or experiencing one of our workshops, you can head over to strongskills.co. Once again, that's strongskills.co to learn more about what we're up to. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. And thanks to all of you who have already done so. Let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Marcus Colston is in the record books with the New Orleans Saints for being one of the best receivers all time. He was recently inducted into their Hall of Fame. And when Marcus finished his 10-year career, he was atop their reception list. He was atop their most receiving yards, the most yards from scrimmage, the highest receiving average in his career. And he had the most career receiving touchdowns. So he had a ton of records by the time he left the New Orleans Saints organization. And during those 10 years, he also helped lead them to a Super Bowl. But this conversation does get into his time playing in the NFL, but it also talks about his journey. He was a seventh round pick 
when he entered the NFL. Prior to that, he only had two offers coming out of high school to play collegiate football, and he went to Hofstra University, so he definitely took a road less traveled. And this conversation is about much more than sports. It's about mindset, and the mindset Marcus used when he was in college and then in the NFL to be successful. And today, Marcus is using that same mindset and that same approach to inspire, consult, and coach other people as an executive coach. He is someone you're going to love listening to and learning from. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you, Marcus Colston. Marcus, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Loved following your career. Uh, Before we started recording, we talked about Brian Wallman, who was a teammate of yours at Hofstra. We're not going to talk about Brian in this conversation, although I'm sure both of us could do an hour at least on Brian. Where I wanted to start was in 2006. And, you know, it's, I think, April 30th. Uh, you become a seventh round pick to the New Orleans Saints. I think it was a, a, a compensatory pick. Um, yeah. Where were you? What was your reaction? What did it feel like? What was it like when you got drafted in the NFL? Yeah, it was, um, I, I was actually at, at my mom's house. I had a bunch of family over. Um, we, we typically watch the draft. We're kind of a football family anyway. So, you know, I had a bunch of friends and family over and it was just, it was a long two days, man. Um, and I, I remember finally getting that call and it was, there was a sense of relief at, 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 and at the same time, kind of this, it's about damn time, um, you know, but, you know, finally getting that call and, and just getting that opportunity, you know, once all of the, the pomp and circumstance kind of wore off, it, it was, it was just a really great opportunity to go and, and, you know, show what I could do at, at the, at the stage that I've been chasing for a long time. And we're going to talk about the next 10 years. So, but I want to go back 10 years too. So if we go to 1996, I think you're around 13 years old. Um, I think when you were 14, you lost your dad. So when I was doing research for this conversation, I was like, wow, you know, 1996, 1997, there's probably this watershed moment that occurs for Marcus. 2006, he's drafted probably a little later than he was hoping to. And then 2016, we'll get to as well, but go back 10 years. So take me to what life was like for you as a kid. You're, you're 13 years old. It's, it's 1996. Uh, what was life for, like for you when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was a much simpler life. Um, you know, I was, uh, I, I played sports really year round. I played football in the fall, basketball, ran track, um, you know, so had uh, four siblings and we were, we were just like a, a sports family, um, you know, so there was always something going on. Um, you know, always competition in the house. And, you know, it was just, like I said, it was a much simpler time. I mean, there was no social media. There was just, you know, you, you come home from school, you go out and, and you, you f- figure out a pickup game to play, whether it's football or basketball. And, um, you know, it was, it was the th- sports was, was kind of like the, 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 the central component of my life. Um, you know, my, my dad was, you know, he, he had coached me literally my, my entire, um, you know, from seven years old on, on all the way through um, until he passed. And, um, you know, it was just it was just fun times, man. Fun times, a lot of competing. And I feel like that's kind of where I, where I started to carve my teeth as a competitor. You know, just, um, you know, just trying to uh, trying to stay ahead of the curve in the neighborhood. And dad passing away. How did that impact you? I mean, it was it was. Uh, it was like two weeks into my freshman year in high school. And, you know, as, as somebody that, that, you know, he was, he was a staple in my life. I, I just mentioned he, he had coached me, you know, my entire childhood. 
um, you know, somebody that, that I just had, I, I looked up to, that was, that was my hero. Um, you know, not just because of what he did, um, you know, in, in sports and, and, in in the community, you know, as a coach, but he just, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the principles that I live with today and live, live by today, you know, I learned, you know, from him growing up and, and, you know, losing him at 14, uh, I, I sometimes think back on it, you know, the, the impact that he made was so strong that even at 38, it's still kind of driving my life, you know? So when you lose somebody like that, um, you know, things, you, you have a lot more questions than answers, you know, and especially at 14 years old, you know, really just starting my high school journey. Um, you know, it was, it was a, it was a big void in my life and it was some pretty, you know, he left some pretty big shoes to fill. So that combination, um, you know, somehow kept me, kept me moving forward. Um, because I knew, you know, the vision that, that we, we always talked about and, and kind of joked about growing up, you know, I knew in a lot of ways, it was just me, you know, carrying, carrying out, you know, our combined vision. So, um, you know, that, that piece kind of kept me moving forward in, in a time that was, you know, really, really tough. How old was he? Uh, he was, he was a little older. He was 68 at the time. Um, okay. you know, so it was, it was really interesting, you know, just his background and, and the time that he grew up in, um, you know, he was a Korean war veteran, um, you know, really, really came of age, you know, in, in a, in a time in this country that was, um, that was a little bit different than it is now. Um, you know, so a lot of the lessons, a lot of the principles, the values, you know, he was, he was really old school. Um, you know, he's, like I said, he, he was, an, he was an army vet. Um, so that combination of the time that, that he really came of age and, and really, um, you know, formed who he was going to be as a man combined with, with, you know, his, his, uh, his time in the army, uh, I think really molded us in a way that, um, gave us a lot of perspective. What was the age gap between you and your siblings? Uh, so I was, I was the middle, I was the middle child, um, uh, everyone is kind of about two, two, three years apart. Um, so, so my, my younger, my younger brother's three years younger than me. Uh, my older sister is, is three years older. Um, another older brother is four years older. And then um, I think my oldest brother is about a six year gap. So we were all, you know, relatively close um, to where, you know, we, we could, uh, we can compete against each other, but, but there was definitely some advantages. Did those older siblings take on, especially your, your two, it sounds like you have two older brothers. Did they take on a little bit of the paternal role that, that your dad did for you? Yeah. I mean, it, it was, they, they tried, you know, because, you know, they're hurting at the same time. Right. And, and it's not like there was this, this massive age gap. I mean, if I'm 14, you know, my, my older brother is, is, you know, 17 or 18 and, um, you know, they they have that same void, right? So, you know, we're all just kind of collectively trying to be there for one another and, you know, at the same time, trying to, trying to heal our own wounds. So, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was definitely a thing that, that brought us closer together, um, as siblings, as a family. And, um, you know, we just, we, we did what we could for one another in, in a time where we, we were each kind of, kind of licking our wounds individually. Marcus, do you have kids now? Yeah. Yeah, I've got um my, my son is uh my son is nine, my daughter is six. Awesome. And what's similar about how you raise them and what what's different? I, I try I try to follow really that the the lead. 
um, that, that I was given. Um, and not just my dad, my, my mom was, was, you know, really, um, you know, just kind of taking, taking the reins after he passed and, you know, finding a way to, to just figure it out. And, you know, just, just having those two examples in my life, um, definitely gave me a lot of tools, um, you know, to, to, you know, take this parenthood thing on and, um, you know, I just try, I try to, to follow in their footsteps as much as possible. And, you know, there, there's also this, this thing in the back of my mind, um, you know, I just, there, there's kind of this urgency, right. You know, losing my dad at 14 and, and really, you know, kind of understanding from an early age that, that this, you know, tomorrow is not promised. Um, you know, so just following their lead and, and you know, just with a little more urgency and, and just trying to be as present as possible, um, you know, in my kids' lives and, you know, give them the same tools that my parents gave me. You mentioned a shared vision that you had with your dad. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from from the time I started watching football and at, you know, age four, um, you know, and to, to being a mascot and, you know, being the, the little guy running out to grab the tee, you know, at, at my older brother's games, um, you know, we, we always talked about, you know, playing, playing on Sundays. Um, you know, and that was kind of our shared dream. We, we, we played football in the fall. We ran track track was the, you know, to, to get in shape and stay in shape for football. Basketball was just cross training to get better at football. So the, the goal was always to, to play on Sundays. And that that's kind of this thing that we shared. And, um, you know, that's, that's the thing that got us through collectively it got us through the, the, the times where he was pushing me, um, you know, as we were working out and training um you just kind of hung that carrot out there um you know so that that was that was something that we we talked about you know we, we talked about a lot and um you know throughout throughout my childhood it was just um you know it was just uh I guess it was foreshadowing a little bit so we mentioned Brian Wallman right away on this podcast and Brian I went to high school with and he was a heck of a receiver and set all kinds of records at our high school. It was really, really impressive. But I don't think Brian had that many offers or opportunities. I don't know. Maybe he did. I'm not sure. You had an interesting situation where it sounded like there were two schools that you were interested in, or that were interested in you, I should say. Missouri, which plays you know big-time football. Um, I get the conferences. I don't know what they were in. Big 12 back then. Yeah. Big 12. Um, or Hofstra. And and so I'm curious, like, why why go to Hofstra instead of Missouri uh, coming out of high school? If you know that, hey, the dream is to play on Sundays, most people would say, eh, Big 12 is probably going to get you a little closer than Hofstra. W- what was the reasoning for going to Hofstra? Well, there was, there was really a couple of different reasons. Um, Hofstra was, was a school that, you know, I, I built a relationship with. Um, they recruited me, you know, from I want to say from the beginning of my senior year. And they had a vision for me. And, um, you know, I got a chance to, to really get to know their coaches, get, get to, to really understand the program a little bit. And, um, you know, I went on an official visit and, and when I decided to commit there, uh, Missouri kind of came in late and it was, it was a really interesting time in that to, to your point, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure, you know, from, from the outside, you know, to, to take that offer to go and play in the big 12, um, you know, just because that's, that's, you know, it's just kind of what you, what you do. Right. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of the goal. It's kind of the dream. Um, but when I, when I gave my word and, and I committed to Hofstra, um, you know, I bought into the vision 
And, you know, it was something that for me, just, just being raised to, to be a man of integrity and be a man of my word, it wasn't something that I wanted to go back on. And, um, you know, again, just being able to see that vision and, you know, see how, even though it was going to be a little bit longer of a path, um, I, I kind of knew I wasn't ready for big time football yet. And I saw Hofstra as an opportunity to go in and, and learn and, and not just learn by, by getting redshirted and, and, you know, being on the scout team and, you know, maybe getting an opportunity to play as a junior or senior. But I, I saw Hofstra as an opportunity to go learn in the fire. Um, you know, so the vision that they laid out, they, they let me know that I would I would probably get on the field, you know, some as a freshman and have an opportunity to really compete as a sophomore. And, um, you know, that's just kind of how things worked out. You know, football is is a game where you're always one man away, um, you know, in, in about seven games into my into my freshman year. Uh, we had an injury. Our All-American receiver in front of me got hurt and it just kind of kind of threw me out there. And, you know, just having that chance to, to get on the field at that point and, and not just confirm some of the things that I could do well, but also learn some of the things that, that I, I really needed to improve upon at that point, um, you know, was, was crucial for me. Um, it was, it was just an opportunity, like I said, to learn by fire. And, you know, to me, that's, that's the best way to learn. There's something interesting about you, which is you, you talk about vision, you talk about thinking into the future and I think of the future and a lot of people will use the word potential. This person's got a lot of potential. And I, I would imagine coming out of high school, it's like, all right, you're what, six, four, you're, you're long, you're skinny, but you, you got this potential. Um, and perhaps that's what Missouri was intrigued by. Oh, he's, he's got potential. The mm-hmm. saints take you with the seventh round pick, you know, a lot of seventh round picks, they don't make it. Um, and by the way, I think you were 252 of 255. So you were almost undrafted, but both at Hofstra and in New Orleans, and we're going to talk more about your time playing in the NFL. You're not just a potential guy. You get your opportunity and you're not just waiting for the future, both places you jump right in. And Brian said, Brian told me this. He said, you know, when this guy got hurt, Marcus, took the opportunity and then ran with it. And in New Orleans, I mean, you're starting right away as a rookie. Um, so how do you balance the ability to see into the future and to work on yourself and think about potential, but also stay grounded and to take advantage of opportunities that are right in front of you? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really, really good question. Um, you know, for, for me, potential... <laughs> I've always kind of had this, this, I, I heard it really early on and it always stuck with me. Um, potential gets people fired, um, especially in sports. And, you know, what I figured out is just the ability to live in the now is the ability, like that's, that's when you can learn, right? So, so me focused on four years from now, me focused on six years from now, 10 years from now, um, it's, it's beneficial to set the vision, right? But unless you're you're mindful and you're here and, and really locked in today and, and trying to get better and win this day, um, there's a lot of meat you're leaving on the bones just in terms of, you know, how can you how can you assess how you're doing? How can you assess, you know, if, if the vision is is five years from now, you know, I've got to I've got to handle business today to make sure that I stay on track, that I can actually reach that vision. And um, there was just something in that first experience at Hofstra 
um, you know, whether it be getting around the right group of, of players that, you know, could have been, they, they could have been intimidated or they could have been, they could have taken my early success differently. Um, but they really kind of pulled me, pulled me along and kind of in a lot of ways took me under their wing and really showed me what it looked like to be a pro. And, and that's, that's really all it is, 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 you know, it's, how can you master your craft? How can you master your, yourself? And, you know, learning that early on and, and seeing that play out, you know, as an 18 year old freshman with, with guys ahead of me that were going to become all Americans um, that planted a seed in me to where one, when you get the opportunity to take the lead, you know, you have to do, you have to, to, to do your part to teach and give the people behind you all of the tools that you have. Um, but two, the only way, the only way to get to the end destination is to really win today. And if you, if you stack enough of those wins together, you know, you just kind of progress towards, towards that end goal that you're working towards. As I was doing my research for this, I love the phrase irrational confidence that you talk about and that you used throughout your career. I wrote a book. Um, and in the book, I talk about your mindset for preparation being different than your mindset for performance. And one of the shifts that I talk about in the book is being humble in preparation and arrogant in performance. Perhaps if we had talked before I wrote the book, I might've used irrational confidence. Some people get tripped up on the word arrogance, but I think we're saying the same thing is like, you have to have this belief in yourself that is greater than anybody else. And then when you step on that field or you're in the tunnel and you're ready to go compete, you have to believe in yourself at such a higher level, even if you drop a few balls that you're going to catch the next one. Can you talk about how you thought about your mindset for preparation and how it may have differed from your mindset for performance? Absolutely. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think that there's, there's, there's a lot more leeway in, in your preparation, right? Because you're, you're always, when you're preparing, you're, you're always looking for those insights and looking for those clues on how can I do this better? And, you know, that, that, that mindset of, of, you know, just being open to suggestion, being open to um, correction, you know, that's, that's ultimately what gives you, gives you the confidence, right? You know, especially playing, playing a sport and playing the position that I played, you're going to get a bunch of different looks that you're going to have to, to figure out how to kind of decode as you're going along. Right. So, so the more reps that you get, whether they be great reps or they be reps that need improvement, that's all data points. And that's all data that you can process to, to kind of continue to get better because the goal is mastery. Right. Um, but when you shift and, and you get to that place where you have to perform, you know, you do have to come in with this, this confidence and this level of, of, it, it is almost arrogance that I've put in, I've put in enough work. I've seen every single look that I can possibly see. I've prepared for every single look that I, I can possibly see. And there's nothing here that's going to surprise me. I can go out and I can play fast. I can go out and play loose and I can go out and really, really let the preparation come to the surface and let it shine. And you know, I think those are the two difference. That's the slight difference in the mindset to where as you're preparing, you, you kind of know that this is a, this is a time where you're learning and you're learning as much as possible um, from success, from failure. And when it comes, when those lights come on and it's time to perform, the confidence really comes from the work and the preparation that you've put in to where there's nothing here that's going to shock me. There's nothing here that's going to surprise me. And if there's something here that I haven't quite seen, 
I have enough context, I have enough context clues to figure it out at, at, a, at a speed that I can still be successful. I think what I've seen when I work with athletes is that you have people that are great in that preparation mode. They're humble, they're perfectionistic, they're willing to constantly grow and get better and learn, 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 learn. But then the lights come on and they struggle to execute because they're still in that preparation mode. They, they're focused on learning and being humble, which are great traits if you want to acquire knowledge and information. But when it's time to execute, their mind actually gets in the way. And that's why they would call someone like me. They would say, hey, Brian, I'm great here. But then here, there's something that's getting in the way. For you, what would you do to be able to let go of the analytical mind? It's clear you're sharp. It's clear that you are already thinking about a vision and thinking about where you wanted to go. I mean, even your college decision is a next level type of decision that most people forget they're 18 years old. Most people at 28, 38, 48 don't have the headiness to make those types of decisions. How did you let go of the head and really focus on letting your body do what your body does on game day? That's, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think back to really early in my career where, you know, it was, it was still new. Like the, the experience was still new. Football is always going to be football. But, you know, you know, lining up at James Stewart Stadium in front of 5,000 people is a whole lot different than lining up in the Superdome in front of 80,000. And, you know, I, in hindsight, I, I, there was there was a way that I was able to just be laser focused on the task at hand and not be distracted by anything else around me. And, um, you know, I think. When you when you don't really understand when you don't really um, when you're not putting the circumstances in front of the performance, you know it kind of clears the way, it kind of clears the runway for you to, to to just go go be instinctual, right? Wait, what do you what do you mean by that? When I don't put the circumstance in front so of so if if I'm not if I'm thinking about so in in practice, right? There's there's really not anything going on. There, there's you're, you're laser focused on this rep. You're laser focused on this period, this situation. Um, but when when it's when game day happens, there's a lot going on around you. There's a lot of crowd noise. There's a lot of, you know, even the, the traffic and the craziness driving to the stadium. There's a lot of white noise. There's a lot of background noise that you know sometimes it tends to to take more mind share. Um, than, than, than it should, right? If the goal is, is to go out and perform at the highest level. And, you know, sometimes that noise kind of creeps in and that's what makes, that's what makes the stakes feel higher. That's what makes, that's what kind of builds the pressure and it builds the, the atmosphere kind of leads you to this place where it feels more, it feels heavier than it should feel. It feels heavier than practice. When in reality, it's the same it's the same looks, it's the same defense, it's the same offense. Um, so in, in my case, I was somehow able to, to really just be laser focused on the task at hand and all of the white noise just remained white noise. And did you, did you have, did you have habits or routines that would help you get into that laser focus or was it just a switch that, that would sort of take place? The, I remember that the last thing that I would do, um, the last thing that I would do uh, before I went on the field to warm up is I would kind of be in my game plan and I, I'm, I'm a really visual person. So I, I had, I played like four different receiver positions. So I had a different color highlighter for every position I played. 
Um, so I would go through the game plan, you know, from kind of top to bottom and, you know, just kind of visualize what the different looks look could be when, when I would expect different things to happen. Um, so I guess for me, that was that last, you know, that was that last checkbox. Like I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm ready. Um, um, I know what's coming. I know what I need to do. I know how I need to adjust. And that last checkbox made me feel like I've prepared to the best of my abilities and now I can go play. I can go, I can go be free. Um, I can go let loose and just, just let my instincts, um, you know, take over. And, you know, I think, you know, for me, that, that last checkbox w- was the thing that allowed me to just kind of let loose. You mentioned noise. So the Superdome's known for noise today, but you came in at a time that's probably like the most pivotal time in the history of that franchise where you're a seventh round pick. They have a bunch. I mean, that draft was, I was looking at it the other night. They had Reggie Bush, who was he the second pick of the draft and Heisman trophy winner and just could do things on a football field in college that people hadn't seen before, but they also, you also had pro bowlers and that draft was just loaded, but even more than that, they had a quarterback that they signed um, coming into your rookie year and a new head coach. And for those that don't know, they had drew Brees and, and Sean Payton. And even more than that, they had a hurricane, hurricane Katrina that completely changed the city and changed honestly the world um, in a, a drastic way. And here you are, you're coming in um, and you're at the beginning stages of really what became one of the po- premier organizations and programs in football. What was it like for you to be on the ground level? And what was it like to be in the city and be involved? And everyone who follows football can remember those games and the electricity and the environment, the circumstance. You came into a, a circumstance. I don't want to say it was a hurricane because that that's not doing service to what the, the tragedy that occurred, but you came in at a time when it was just a watershed moment for the city and for Drew Brees and for yourself and for Sean Payton and for the organization. So talk about what that was like to be a part of that. Yeah, it was, um, again, in hindsight, it, it was, it was just an incredible moment in time. Um, you know, because I, I got drafted, I was, I was 22 years old. I'd never been to Louisiana. Um, so I'm going down there, you know, six or maybe eight months after Hurricane Katrina had hit. And it was still, in a lot of ways, it was still like a ghost town. Um, you know, so, you know, fast forward a few months, we get through training camp. Um, you know, nothing, nothing was, was set up for us um, to, to, you know, practice or, or even play preseason games at home in the Superdome because everything was still being repaired. Um, you know, so we went through our preseason at a small college in Jackson, Mississippi, um, we played, we played home games in, in Shreveport and Jackson, Mississippi, um, during the preseason. So the, the game to reopen the dome was literally my first ever home game in the Superdome. Um, you know, so when you, when you think about everything that's going on around you, um, and again, at 20, 22, 23 years old, um, you can, you can feel the gravity, but you just haven't experienced enough life to, to really know exactly what that means to, to people that have, have maybe lost everything. Um, you know, but, but, you know, you know, that it's a really important moment and you know that, um, you know, there's a lot riding 
on this one game, right? Because at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's it's an opportunity um, for for people to to enjoy something for three hours that, you know, it's, it's a three hour block where, you know, those worries and the things that you're going through can, you can kind of press pause, right? And we felt, we felt that, we felt how important that, that a moment could be. Um, and I remember like it, like it was yesterday, um, Sean Payton said one, said something that, that he would always say in these big games, he, he would come to say it more in these big games, but this was really the first big game that we played in. Um, he said, it's, it's, it's only special if you win. And for, for whatever reason, that moment right there, that, that one sentence, um, it, it put it all in perspective um, to where, you know, everything that's going on around you, um, you still have to be laser focused on getting this win. And if you can get this win, it's a domino effect that allows people to, to enjoy the moment a little bit more. And for whatever reason, um, that, that phrase always kind of stuck with me um, because it, it, it's 100% true. I mean, it, it's all the moments, everything can line up perfectly, the stars can align, but it's still a function of your performance. And you still have to go be able to perform at the highest level um, to really get the most out of that moment. There's something amazing. I always talk to my clients about working from the inside out. So how you talked about circumstance. I think if we rely on our environment or our circumstance to drive our behavior, then we're working from the outside in and it can just lead to all kinds of inconsistency. Mm -hmm. So if we create habits and routines that work us from the inside out, then we can weather storms and we can handle different situations. And when I work with sports teams and sports coaches or leaders, we talk about creating culture and how can we create a culture that all boats can rise with a rising tide, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about you because a lot of what made you successful was your ability to block out the noise but then I'm thinking about this season and this experience that you're having with the city where the city is really falling in love with the New Orleans saints in a way that I don't think they had really fallen in love with the saints before people forget. They were called the Aints. Like this was not an organization that was doing well. And then you have this great rookie class. You've got a hall of fame quarterback. We've got a hall of fame coach. And, and all of a sudden the culture, it shifted um, so I'd be curious to get your perspective on culture and, and what you noticed as a rookie and what happened over the next 10 years from a culture building standpoint, uh, in New Orleans and specifically with the saints. So I'm, I'm a firm believer that, um, you know, just our, our lived experiences, if, if you, if you can access some of your lived experiences and the insights that come, you know, from some of those experiences, um, it te history tends to repeat itself and you can use those things as fuel, right? So for me, for me personally, um, you know, I had kind of been in that situation two, two different times before, right? So e even in making a decision to, to go to Hofstra and not go to the big 12 school, um, you know, there were people that, that I thought were really strong supporters of me um, that when I made that decision, um, it turned into it turned into a negative decision, right? And and you know people talked about 
people talked about me and people talked actually to to my, my family members about that decision. What did they um, say about you? They said you were like a coward or what, what was like the thinking just, behind I, it? They just kind of looked at me like I was crazy. Mm. Um, and again, if you kind of rewind and at the time, it was it was literally the only person that I could really lean on to, to make that decision was my mom because my father had passed away. So there were a lot of dads of, of like high school teammates that, that were super opinionated. And, and, you know, it's, it's a woman that's helping me make these decisions. So clearly she didn't know anything. Right. Um, so that was just kind of the, the, the tone of, of those decisions and, and those, those um, you know, some of that commentary. And it, it was at that moment where I kind of learned in, in this context to, all right, these are people that I, I normally would, would really respect your opinion, but this is the decision that I got to make this is what's best for me and my family. So now you're kind of on the outside looking in, right? Fast forward again, I get drafted in the seventh round, right? The, the bandwagon that tends to follow you around when you're a high pick, uh, when you're a seventh round pick at the very end of the draft, third to the last pick, that bandwagon kind of thins out, right? So again, if you choose to get off the bandwagon, you're now on the outside looking in and I'm, I'm making decisions based on what's, what's best for, for me and what's right in front of me. Um, so you fast forward again and to, to your question about culture, I feel like what changed the culture in that 06 class was the type of player and the type of background and experience that the organization decided to bring in. Um, it was it was a focus on high character individuals. Um, a lot of folks in that draft class had been through a lot of adversity. A lot of folks in that draft class. I mean, you think about Drew Brees at the time, right? You know, we see Drew as the the the, the shoe in Hall of Famer right now, but that version of Drew was coming off of a shoulder injury that there, there were a bunch of folks in 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 high places that thought he was never going to be able to play again, especially not at the same level. And they replaced him with a young, with a young, they, they went after a, a rookie quarterback in the draft quarterback. Yep. So, I mean, even, even Sean, Sean coming in, he's a first time head coach. He's, he's just an offensive mind. He's, he's not a head coach. He's just a, you know, so that the culture was kind of built around high character individuals that could handle adversity. And when you start to build a team and you start to put a team together that, that has high character people, um, it starts to not granted there, there were times that it, there were times during that season, it felt like we were, we, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, you know, we, we were just like, um, we were just out there on, on grit. We were out there on, um, just, just pure mental toughness in, in a lot of situations. And because that group was kind of made up of similar people, similar types of people, um, we found a way to win a lot of games that, you know, the rest of the country gave us really no shot. Um, you know, so I think that started to become the foundation of the culture that would become the New Orleans Saints that we see today. And, you know, it all started with, with high character individuals that, you know, we probably, we weren't the most talented team on the field, but, we were cohesive in the fact that, you know, we were going to fight, you know, we knew how to handle adversity. And, you know, I think it was very intentional in the way that they constructed that roster. 
it's interesting. I've consulted at three different NBA teams uh, during my career. And I can tell you from being, you know, at the NBA combine or being in the war room or getting behind the curtain scenes of free agency and trades, they operate differently. There is just no question in my mind. And there are teams that will just take the most talented people and that's what they do. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I have my own opinions on that, but they're saying, Hey, talent, talent's going to win out. And there are other people that say, well, they need to fit what we're doing and align with what we're doing. And then there are other ones that say, no, we we're looking for a certain type of human being. And, um, and they won't take players. You know, when you're watching the NBA or NFL draft and you're watching a kid in college and you're like, how is this guy falling? How is this guy falling? the odds are there's probably some issue with the person. And that's not to say people don't change. They do. We all have the potential to change, but teams, teams shop for different groceries in different ways. And um, I think that is one of the biggest differentiators between organizations is how they think about shopping for groceries and think about your own situation. We, do we go to the grocery store with a list and know exactly what we need for the week are we going on Wednesday because we're out of food and now we need more food? Are we going just because, Oh, that, that apple looks really great. I'm going to take that apple. Like, and so I really think when you're constructing a team, there are so many different ways to go about doing it. And there are plenty of teams that have won because their talent is just so much higher. So I'm not minimizing talent, but to me, the ones that sustain excellence, there's usually this, this perfect storm of talent and, um, and, and and really, it's it's their character. It's it's knowing who the people are. I see you getting itchy, wanting to wanting to speak. So, what are, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I think I think you're, you're spot on. And the the only thing that I would add is that you know the organizations that have enough humility to it doesn't matter who they who they pick. The the organizations that have enough humility to actually make decisions based on what they see. Right. So it's it's only a mistake if, if you pick the wrong player. It's only a mistake if you see that he's not the right player and you continue to put them in a position and, you know, in essence. Take take another player that is a fit that has produced and has has everything that you're looking for and you don't give them a fair shake or, or an opportunity. And, you know, I saw that, you know, kind of early on in that. Um, there were players that they would draft and there were players that came in as, as free agents. And, you know, it didn't really matter how that player got there. The, the best player, the best fit for the team was going to make the roster. Right. So, so I think that there's, there's a level of, you're not going to get every decision, right. There's, there's so many different factors that come into play, you know, um, when, when you're trying to put a roster together, but when you, when you see, you know, things play out and you don't make decisions based on what you see, you make decisions based on your ego and not admitting that you're wrong. I think that's where a lot of these organizations get themselves in trouble. And there's so many ways to be successful. And, you know, just last night, Tom Brady returned to New England and, and played the Patriots. And then after the game, I just saw this video of him, you know, Bill Belichick giving him like a one second hug uh, and then walking away and then Josh McDaniels going over there and embracing him with like a 10 second hug. And by the way, Bill Belichick, arguably the greatest football coach ever. So the wins are there, but I think for each of us, those are, those are different approaches and relationship building and how people go about leading 
And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I think it is up to each of us to figure out if we're a leader, what culture are we setting? How do we want to show up? What kind of relationships do we want to build for each other? Because there's different ways. There's transactional leadership, there's transformational leadership, and there's diff different things work for different people. And I think at the end of the day, what's true to you and what's genuine to you. And to, to your point, are you, are you a truth teller? Um, Cause if you're not going to be telling the truth and you're just going to play someone because you drafted them here, you're paying them here, the locker room knows. And, and, and that's just a tough, tough way to go about it. Was there a coach that really saw you early on and said, Hey, Marcus, like, I know you're a seven round pick, but dude, you can play because you went from being a seventh round pick to being a thousand yard receiver and, and being a staple in, in that offense that ended up being, you know, a prolific offense. Um, was there someone that, that saw you early on and, and mentored you and, and helped bring you along or even a player or somebody who helped develop you? I would say that there's not, there's not one, one person in particular. I think um, there, there were a lot of people along, along the way, um, you know, so, you know, obviously, like I mentioned um, just now, you know, when when you see a player that that comes in as a seventh round pick and you see them progressing, and you can acknowledge that progression, um, you know, it's for for a young player it just gives them confidence, right? So when you see your rep count in practice start to kind of go up, and you see your you see more and more opportunities, it's it's kind of that positive reinforcement that all right, I'm, I'm doing some things right here. So um, I think it was a lot of it was situationally. I think, you know, I had a, I had a position coach, my wide receiver coach was somebody that, um, you know, he wasn't necessarily going to let me know that I was doing well, but the fact that his, his, the, the, the pressure and the, the coaching was so consistent um, that helped me just kind of really understand that you know he's applying this pressure to see to see what I'm going to do with it, right? Um, because there was there were other players that you know once once the coach once the coaches stop coaching you to that level of detail, now that that's when you know you're in trouble, right? So the fact that he kind of stayed on me and continued to push me to to get more and more out of myself, um, that kind of gave me some clues. And then you know just having veteran players that accepted the work. Right. Um, you know, if 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 there if there's a rep that didn't go right in practice, um, it, it would be very easy for somebody like Drew Brees to just, you know, go in and, you know, I'm, I, he's going to get his mental rep and, you know, he's going to continue to get better. But he was somebody that took the young players, took people like myself, um, made sure that we were always on the same page, made sure we always ended with positive reps. So it was just a, a collection of, of people and experiences that just kind of continued that positive reinforcement. And it was just, again, like just going in with enough humility to understand that there's people that have been here. There's people that know some things that I don't know. And, you know, I, I've got two options. I can come in and, and feel like I'm doing really well and, and you know, just kind of live in, in my own success or, I can uh, keep my eyes wide open and, and learn from as many people around me as possible. And, and, you know, choosing the latter helped really make my career successful. You talk about learning and being aware. Your nickname was the quiet storm. Where did that nickname come from? That it just kind of popped on the scene somewhere around like my sophomore year in college. Mm. And um, I kind of memorialized it with, with some, some tattoos that, that young people get. And um, the rest is kind of history. 
<laughs> and but you play a position where it's the least quiet position probably in the NFL. And you played alongside Joe Horn, who as a wide receiver was definitely not quiet from the outside looking in, at least played with a swagger and um, you know, that helped make him special in his own right. Um, For you playing a position like wide receiver, but maybe doing so with less, uh, the word that I'm thinking of is like bombastic, like, less maybe flash. Like, I don't think I, I think about watching your career and it wasn't, you know, the T O the Joe Horn, like, you know, those guys, even today, like I live in Washington, DC, uh, you know, Terry McLaurin plays with a quietness, even though he's one of the best receivers in the league, but it's rare. A lot of times your position is a louder, you know, throw me the damn ball type of position for you playing that position, but taking that sort of quiet storm approach, how did you think about that? I didn't. <laughs> and that's 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 the truth. Like I just I just played the game in a way that was authentic to who I am. Um, and you know, I watch a lot of those other guys and and I'm I'm fans of what they do. Um, but I knew for me, um, I was just always gonna be me. Um, I've always been, you know, kind of low-key. Um, I'd, I'd rather or rather show you than tell you. And you know, when I got the opportunity to start playing and and you know, really, um, you know, make a name for myself. Uh, I, I knew very early on that I, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be inauthentic to who I was. Um, you know, and it's something that it's, it's weird in that when you play a sport, it is, it is entertainment, right? It, it turns out to be entertainment, but I always took the approach that, that it's not my job to entertain. My job can be entertaining, but it's not my job to entertain you. Um, it's my job to put in the work and come out here and, and play at the best of my abilities. And um, that's kind of the approach that I always took. When you think of Quiet Storm, what do you think of? Um, not, not really going to say a whole lot. And, and, you know, the goal is for, for my production to speak volumes. And if we go to that Super Bowl, um, what was that experience like for you? I mean, it was a heck of a Super Bowl. Onside kick. There, there's just a lot, a lot going on in that game. But what was that experience like playing in the Super Bowl? I think about this. You and I both work with leaders and work with people in business. They'll often say, "This is my Super Bowl." And so, even the phrase Super Bowl gets used outside of sport all the time. What was your Super Bowl like for you? It was. Um... It was it was an amazing experience, um, but also at the same time, it was very it was very nerve wracking as a performer um, because you you get so used to routine. And in a lot of ways, your routine kind of becomes the precursor to your success. And your routine is completely disrupted for an entire week. Right. You have a, a Tuesday media day, which, you know, for somebody like myself, you don't look forward to media days. Um, <laughs> um, Maybe if know, they you, were long form podcasts, you would have been you would have been plenty happy with it. <laughs> it's, it's you know, it's, it's all you're asking the right questions. So that's that's um, that's I guess what it, that's what it boils down to for me. Um, but, yeah, your, your routine is just completely disrupted. You know, you're practicing at a new place. You are you know, dealing with ticket and media requests, you know, all week long. And, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's trying not to let the, the atmosphere and the environment become a factor in your, in your, your preparation. 
right? So it's it's how do you package all of this stuff up, all of this pomp and circumstance? How do you package it up as white noise and just kind of um, not pay it any attention? And, it, and it's really difficult um, because, you know, normally you, you play a game and there's a bunch of other games going on around you, right? You're playing on Monday night. That's kind of the only time where there's nothing else happening around you. But, you know, the, the entire world is kind of watching you and with a microscope, you know, for, for an entire week. And that just is, is different. Um, so you're, you're kind of, you're kind of getting, hoping you get the game day as fast as possible because that's the most normal thing of the week. Right. So, I mean, you, you get out, you, you, everybody kind of sees all the camera flashes and like that, that first kickoff, that's kind of the thing that you think about as a player. Um, and you know, once, once that ball kicks off, you see the entire stadium light up with camera flashes. Um, that's the first time it feels like, all right, now I get to just go play the game. And, you know, once you get to that point, it's just another football game. Um, you know, so it, it, it was a, it was a nerve wracking lead up, but the experience itself, I mean, it's, it's the thing that I, I dreamed about since I was four years old, man. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier that Sean Payton said, Hey, we need to win moments. Um, what was it like to experience winning the Super Bowl? It, it was weird, man. It was weird in that the gravity didn't it hit you at random times or hit me at random times. Um, you know, you see the confetti coming down and, you know, your family is kind of running on the field um, and it kind of hits you, but it doesn't really hit you. It didn't really hit me until like the, the parade back in New Orleans. Um, you know, just being able to get back to the city and see, you know, almost a million people lying in the streets, you know, we got on floats at, at noon and didn't get home until it was dark outside. Like that's kind of when it hit like the gravity of what we had just accomplished hit. Um, but at the same time, the competitor in you is like, all right, let me, let me kind of enjoy this now because tomorrow I got to get back to chasing the next one. Right. So there's this, there's this weird feeling of you want to enjoy it. You want to soak it all up but you don't want to get too full on it because you got to go chase the next one. Being around Drew Brees and Sean Payton and other great players, was there a through line that you noticed that was similar between those people and, and similar between yourself? You had a, a great career. Was there any qualities or any through lines that you noticed being around greatness on a regular basis? I think there, there's a couple. Um, I think one is is humility in the sense that there's opportunities to continue to learn and get better from everything around you. Um, you know, when you have somebody like Sean and somebody like Drew that, you know, they had accomplished so much at that point um, in their careers, but again, still kept this, this humility to where if, if a receiver or a tight end saw something differently, you know, they would take that insight and, and it's, it's a valuable insight. Right. It's something that I didn't see and it's something that I didn't experience, but I'm going to I'm going to trust you. And now we can kind of incorporate this into the way that we we game plan and prepare. Right. So I think. The great the great players, coaches that I've been around, no matter what they accomplish, they are they're still lifelong learners and they're they're humble enough to um, to not discount where the advice or the insights come from. Um, and I'll say the second thing is just just preparation. Um, 
just having a chance to play with with Drew and play with somebody like a Jonathan Vilma. Um, when you see the way that those guys prepare, um, how they leave no stone unturned, um, you know, there's and it's not just in the playbook. It's it's how they take care of their bodies. It's how they you know, how they eat, how um, how you stick to your routine, no matter what's going on around you. Like th- just that attention to detail and preparation um, to where, again, like I said before, there's certain times where like I'm, I'm playing offense, I'm playing receiver. The defense gets paid too, right? They're game planning just as much. And there's going to come a point in time where you don't, you don't have all of the answers, but when you prepare enough, um, it allows you to kind of midstream adjust and, you know, still be on the same page and still get to the end goal just in a different way. And that, that's all a matter of preparation. That's, that's mental reps, that's physical reps. And that's just enough of the context clues. And you don't get those clues without preparing to the level, you know, that, that we prepared at. We mentioned 2006 being the year that you're drafted. We went back to 1996 and when you're playing – with your dad and just, you know, having that experience before you lose him. I want to go to 2016 where you're released by the saints 10 years. They later, a few years later, you know, induct you into their hall of fame. Uh, so there's still love for you, but um, what was that day like for you when you were released and talk about the decision to not continue on and you could have probably gone and played for another team, but, but why, why hang it up after that? Yeah, I, I played my, my goal coming in was to play 10 years. Um, so I got released after after year 10. And, you know, I just taken over my career, just the way that I played the game. I, I took a lot of hits. I, t- I took a lot. I was involved in a lot of collisions. Um, and, you know, after a while, it kind of takes its toll on you. And, you know, when I got released, I, I knew that one, I knew that my last year I didn't play to the, to the internal level that I set for myself. Like I always had this vision of if I can't play to a certain level, I don't want to be a player that's just kind of hanging on because I can. Right. So there was that part of it. And there was also the part that I knew I still had some production left in the tank, but I wasn't, I wasn't going to put my family in a situation. I wasn't going to put myself in a situation where um, I was going to uproot us and, and go somewhere else, just kind of chasing this thing um, for, for years and years to come. So, you know, I think that that combination of circumstances, along with the fact that I had been kind of laying the groundwork on, on the business side while I was still playing, um, it made it made it a really easy decision for me to hang them up. Um, you know, I got I think I got one call uh, after I got released. My agent called me, told me somebody such and such was interested. And I just let him know at that point, like, I'm I'm done. Don't don't even field any more calls. If somebody calls, don't even tell me like I'm 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 through. I'm going to hang them up and I'm going to go move on to the next chapter of my life. You mentioned during your career, exploring other options today. I feel like it's much more common to have a side hustle, so to speak. And we're more accepting, I think, of a quote unquote side hustle what about you allowed you to go explore while you're playing and, and what do you recommend for athletes that are in it? Because a lot of people be like, just obsess on the one thing, just be all in. Don't put, put blinders on, don't do anything else. 
I'm curious, like what advice you have for athletes and, and why were you so inclined to get educated in other things outside of football while you were still performing at such a high level? Yeah, I mean, I, I know in my in my case, I was just I was blessed and fortunate enough to have two advisors uh, for me that were actually on my financial advisory team that former players and just being able to see them in a different light, being able to see them transition successfully into the next chapter um, was really it was just a really impactful visual for me to see. And at the same time, they, they kept pushing me to, to learn and they kept pushing me to, um, you know, get get out and, and experience, you know, and start building that next chapter while I still had the platform to do it. Um, so I, I give them a lot of credit for, for really pushing me out of that comfort zone because it is, it is very comfortable, you know, when you get to, to a level of success, it's very comfortable to, to kind of stay there and just soak that up and, and just live in that. Um, so they, they pushed me out of my comfort zone. And, and once I got out there and got started, um, it kind of sparked the curiosity in me that, um, I'm somebody, I, I'm just, I'm a, I consider myself a lifelong learner. And, you know, one of the things that made me really successful in the sport that I played was um, I, I continued to learn. I continued to evolve even as, you know, you know physical tools started to, to kind of dissipate a little bit. I was able to, to still perform because I was I was, you know, still learning how to manipulate defenses and and, you know, still produce just in a different way. Right. So um, just that curious nature in me um, helped me really come to terms with with the fact that I could do multiple things at a high level. And, um, you know, once I got started, it, it was, there was really no stopping me. Um, you know, I got into, you know, ownership and, and uh, managing a, a pro team, you know, at the same time I was playing, which was a bit crazy now that I think about it. Um, but no, once, once I got started and I, I started to, to figure out that this, um, one, that the myth, the myths are not true, right? Once you kind of demystify the fact that, you know, you can be an athlete and you can be something else. Um, once you kind of unlock that, it's like, well, hold on. I've, I've actually figured out how to do and position myself to be one of the, you know, 1800 people amongst 8 billion to be able to do this and compete at this high level. Um, well, if I can figure that out, I can, I can definitely figure some other things out, right? So when you start connecting dots and you start demystifying the fact that, you know, I can, I wasn't just born a professional athlete. I had to become a professional athlete. And if I can repurpose that journey into other things and other avenues, um, then I can, I can do some really impactful things in, in other places as well. So um, just being able to figure that out, um, that, that would be the one piece of advice that I would give to any athlete that, that, that's, that wants to hear it and wants to listen is, you know, a lot of people will celebrate you for what you do, um, the game that you play, but your cheat code is the fact that your process to get there. Um, and when you can start thinking about that in a different context, it just, it unlocks an entirely different world for you to navigate. It's so big. I mean, you're talking about identity and transitioning and I work with a lot of college athletes who they don't transition to professional sports and they really struggle with their identity because you mentioned four-year-old you was imagining, you know, seeing the confetti come down. 
for a lot of athletes, their four-year-old version of themselves or five or six or seven or eight, they became an athlete and that's who they were. And then they struggle like, well, now what do I do? But what you just said is so key. It's like, no, you learned a ton from going through this process. Those are the skills. And you just need to drill down on them and distill down on those. And by the way, if you can get a door open because your name's Marcus Colston, that's no different than anybody and anyone is doing. They're going to try to use whatever they've done to open doors. That's, that's the same as what anyone else does. So if you played college soccer at a university and you have a network from that university because you played soccer, go use that. But the skills that you have and that you possess, maybe it's discipline, maybe it's grit, maybe it's how you handle adversity. Like you mentioned earlier, maybe it's work ethic, maybe it's focus. Like those skills, you just need to figure out, all right, now how do I apply it? But it's hard. And I understand why it's hard because if you're doing the same thing every day for 20 years or however long you're doing it for, that becomes what you do. It's hard to then see how that can apply to something beyond the lines. And I think it's a big, big challenge for people as they transition, even outside of professional sports. I'm sure you have friends who you played with who forget financial success, just fulfillment and and where they um, feel alive outside of the lines. So I know I went on a little rant there, but I think what you said is so, so important. We talk about 2016 being 10 years. And then I think about you being someone who likes to vision and likes to think about where you're going. So it's 2016. Let's go to 2026. Um, what was your vision for yourself then? And then here we are 2021. I'm pretty sure you didn't think we were going to have a pandemic and, and, and see that happen. So you're about halfway through that 10 year experience. And I thought about your journey really in these 10 year chunks. And it's interesting. You said, Hey, I wanted to play for 10 years. Where did you see yourself going when you retired in 2016? And then I'm curious even more than where you saw yourself, but where do you see yourself in 2021 going the next five years? So, so it's really interesting that you framed it that way. And, you know, we're, we're kind of right in the middle of this 10 year block. And I would say from 2016, when I retired, um, up until about two years ago, I, I really didn't know. I really had no, no real, um, vision for where I was going. I was, I was doing a lot of the things that, you know, I, I enjoyed, um, you know, whether it be venture capital or I mentioned that the pro sports, uh, the ownership piece, I was doing, I was doing things that I enjoyed, um, but I, I, I didn't necessarily have a, they weren't kind of, they weren't tethered to this vision. And, you know, I think in hindsight, I was doing some of the things that I thought I was supposed to be doing. Right. Um, you know, when you, when you think about how they talk about athletes in transition, um, you know, it's, it's philanthropic or it's, it's venture capital or it's, it's, it's these handful of things. Right. And I was just kind of following that path, but it wasn't my path. And, um, you know, one, when, the, when the pandemic hit, I had some, some, some really interesting decisions to make, um, because my time was just kind of scattered all over the place, you know, business-wise, I was doing some consulting, I was doing some, I had an entrepreneurial venture that I was working on. I'm still doing the investing thing. So my time was kind of scattered amongst a bunch of different things. And, you know, I remember it like it was yesterday. My kids came home from school one day, um, you know, and they said, all right, we're going to we're going to just we're going to be virtual for a couple of weeks. 
um, while we figure out what, while basically why this thing kind of passes through. Um, 18 months later, we were still doing virtual school. <laughs> so the big, the biggest decision I had to make was, you know, how can I live more intentionally with my time, right? Because now, you know, my, my day, which was kind of scattered everywhere, um, kind of putting out fires and, and trying to make progress in a bunch of different areas. Now my mornings were devoted to my kids and making sure that, you know, us as adults, we, we have our challenges, you know, dealing with change and dealing with everything that came along with the pandemic. Um, but the kids, they lost their entire, they, they lost every bit of normalcy they had. Like they went from going to school, sitting in class with their buddies, going to recess to sitting at home, you know, next to us while we watch the news, trying to figure out what's happening. Um, so I made the, the, the first decision I made was very intentional in that my family has to come first and then everything that doesn't fit within that, um, I've got to make some tough decisions. And through that process, what I started to figure out was I started to your earlier point, I started to really examine everything that I was doing at the time. And I started to um, really try to distill down to why I was doing those things. And what I landed on was, even as a, as a, a pro sports uh, team owner, my, my goal was really to try and, and create um, opportunities for, for, uh, for players uh, to continue playing. Um, it was to you know, do community outreach in a way that was a little bit different and a little more scalable. Um, as, a, as, a, as an investor and a consultant, my goal was really helping entrepreneurs really execute against the vision that they had um, and even some of the consulting work I was doing, it was, it, it just, the through line became, you know, I'm really passionate about helping people execute and, and really realize their vision. And, you know, when I started to, to look at the ways that I was doing it, um, it, it wasn't super efficient. Um, you know, so between really devoting my mornings and devoting, really my time and my intention to my family and making sure that, that they didn't miss a beat. Um, with the time that I had left, I started to really, really in, in a lot of ways introspect. And what I came out of that, that um, you know, that eight, 10 month period with is kind of this entirely new trajectory to where um, I'm really no longer in venture capital. I'm, I'm, I'm have kind of transitioned fully into education and personal development. And, um, you know, so, so it's a long winded way of saying to answer your, to answer your question of 10, 10 year blocks. Um, I'm kind of relaunching this, this next five years in, 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 you know, really focus on, uh, personal professional development and education. Um, what does that actually look like for you? What are the mechanics of it look like for you? So, um, well, first of all, I started, I started teaching, um, I started teaching, uh, last fall, um, you know, this, this virtual world kind of opened up an opportunity to take on an adjunct professor role down at university of new Orleans. Um, so this is actually my third semester teaching, uh, an undergrad course on entrepreneurship and leadership. Um, I've, I've recently, you know, got into, um, the executive coaching space and really from, from the, from the the standpoint of, 
you know, there, there are individuals that, whether they're professionals, um, other entrepreneurs, um, you know, there are folks that are really in the same, in the same boat that I saw myself in, which are, you know, they're kind of, they're kind of running the race and they're doing well at the race, um, but it's not their race. Um, and really helping, helping other individuals really kind of distill out the things that they're passionate and purposeful about and, and trying to build intentional success around those things. Um, so that's, that's kind of, um, really using myself as, as, as an example. Um, that's, that's really how I envision seeing myself grow, uh, building and scaling out this executive coaching practice, just really, again, just helping other individuals realize what success looks like to them. Um, you know, being able to, to really introspect and see what are the tactical and, and technical skills that I have, you know, but also what are the lived experiences that I have that, you know, in, in a lot of professional settings, your lived experiences become a, become a liability. It becomes something that you, you, you have to hide to get into in the door. Um, but really, how can you leverage those things as an asset and as a differentiator, you know, to, to create the kind of success that, that aligns with who you are and where you want to go? That's awesome. So I think that's a great place for us to wind down here. Marcus, if people want to find out more about your coaching, um, you mentioned some consulting, uh, if people want to learn more about you and what you're up to, where, where can they go about doing that? Uh, they can find me on, uh, my, my website is, is marcuscolson.xyz. Um, I'm also on, uh, Twitter, Instagram handle is just my name, Marcus Colston. And, um, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. I like to play on Twitter and LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Marcus, this has been a blast. Looking forward to many more conversations with you as you continue to explore the executive coaching world. And uh, hopefully we can break bread at some point. Maybe we'll meet in the middle and in, in like Baltimore, I guess would be in the middle of Philadelphia and, and DC. Um, but thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, appreciate you. And I uh, hope we can talk again real soon. I appreciate the invite, man, and, and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. When you're not putting the circumstances in front of the performance, you know, it kind of clears the way, it kind of clears the runway for you to, to, to just go go be instinctual.